reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So far our reading. Thanks, Christine. Well, I'd now like to welcome up Etienne as he comes up and uh, speaks to us from God's Word. And, um, yeah, we pray for you during the service. Thanks, mate. That's fantastic. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I I think it's such a delight to... uh, do what we're doing in this little preaching series where we're sort of saying let's, uh, let's do stuff together as churches in the northwest coast and I don't know how widely known this is to everyone, um, certainly not widely known in, in Devonport yet because we're only kicking off this series today but we initially hoped that we could have um, the Presby- Presbyterian Church in Alveston and in Devonport and us two Reformed churches participating in this. Um, Alveston Presby unfortunately couldn't um, Peter was, was on holidays and then as of two weeks ago, uh, Andrew Satchel in Devonport Presbyterian Church, uh, as best I could make out, had a, a mild heart attack. So, so he's out as well. So unfortunately our, our, our initial intentions for a four-part series on the Psalms that we, that we share couldn't happen. Andrew's okay, by the way. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't leave you hanging with that. Uh, he's alright. God's, God's, God's getting him up to speed soon and he's recovering well. But it does mean that we are down from a four-part thing that we're doing to a two-part thing 
essentially a pulpit swap uh, that Julian and I are doing. And it's still wonderful uh, for us to participate and to partner together in the Gospel. Some years ago, uh, I had a, a prolonged struggle with a sinful addiction. Now, no matter how hard, how hard I tried, I, I really seemed to uh, fall victim to this thing for, for quite a lengthy time. And at times, I wondered, as, as someone who considered myself a Christian at the time, if there really is any hope for me at all to live in this respect the way that I know God intends for me to live. And I had to ask myself, uh, what do I pray? What do I say to God as I sit in the ashes of moral defeat? And I think that's the question that I want to bring to us this morning. What, what do we do? Karina brilliantly already introduced us to that. What do we do when we fail as Christians? Whether it's spectacular once-off ways in which we see Christians fail, for example, adultery or gross corruption, or whether it's in the more socially accepted ways, if you like, like not being able to let go of a grudge, escaping feelings of jealousy, not being able to love Jesus more than we love money or wealth or possessions or power, and not being able to overcome uh, losing our temper and controlling our anger. Uh, when we find ourselves as Christians in, in these places, what do we do? How do we pray? What, what do we say? Well, I believe that Psalm 51 uh, that we're looking at today is exactly God's answer to us. And what I would like to do is to simply work through this psalm today with you. I'm not going to go into the history or the context very widely or deeply. Suffice it to say, these are the words of a person who, as a, a Christian of his day, has failed miserably. A godly leader of his people who fell into adultery, who tried to cover this scandal up uh, by way, really, of murder. And this got out. It's a scandal that would make Barnaby Joyce blush. <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was it's inconceivable how hard this was, how big this was, how severe this was in, in, in the kingdom of God. And these are his words that he penned to us in the, in, in the way of a song. And there's six parts to it, as I mentioned. Uh, a couple of things, just before I get cracking into the first one. I want to acknowledge an author called Montgomery Boyce, on whose work I rest here. It's important that I acknowledge that because, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not, not entirely my own, <laughs> very much, drawing on his work. And then I want to say that I want you to imagine as we preach through this psalm that we are on a canoe and we are paddling down this river 
And as we paddle along, the six parts of this psalm is like creeks that sort of shoots off to the side. And some of those creeks I'm going to paddle up a little bit further so we can get a good look at what's going on there. But due to the length of the psalm and the sheer amount of things that's in it, we just cannot paddle up them all. (laughs) So some of them we're just going to sort of skirt past and have a look and, and move on and I'll let you know which ones we're going up and down. And I should also say in the beginning, it's a fairly lengthy river. Um, it's, it's, it's a longer sermon that I usually like to preach, but when we met to discuss the series, the boys said, you do Psalm 51, and I said, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. All right, what does David do as he sits in this position of failure, and what should we do as Christians when we fail? Well, essentially, there are six things that I think we can say. Six things that David says. First one is this. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. And if you guys can just scroll me along, um, Andy, thanks. I'm going to just leave the, the Bible verses up there. I won't read them every time, but I'll, they'll just be up there so you can see where I'm going. God have mercy on me. In those verses we see something about God, something about us as humans and something about what gives us a reason to approach God, to actually talk to God, to come to God. About God we see that he is merciful, that he shows unfailing love to us even if we don't deserve it that God is a God of great compassion. About ourselves, David refers to him in his transgressions. He talks about my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. Transgressions are things like crossing a forbidden boundary. There's a line that's drawn that, that God says, don't cross this boundary and we cross it. Iniquity has to do with our, sort of almost our genetic, and I'll talk a bit more about that later, our genetic inability to live morally the way that God wants us to live. And my sin uh, means, you may have heard this before, the way that this Hebrew word characterises sin is something like a target. and It's an arrow shooter shooting an arrow at a target and he's supposed to hit the target, but when he misses... The word used for sin often is, is that analogy. You know, we're supposed to hit a target with our lives morally, but we often miss. And that's called sin. So about God we see in these verses that he is merciful. About us we see that we are sinful. Now, I just want to pause here and say you've got to understand this is a highly unpopular thing to say in the world you and I live in. You know, we live in a world where everything and everyone around you want to try and tell, wants to try and tell you how good you are, how worthy you are, how deserving you are. And yet the Gospel, Psalm 51, tells us something entirely different. It says to us here that, you know, the only hope of anything good or worthy that 
we may have in this world is purely based on the fact that God may have mercy on us. That he may treat us according to his unfailing love, that he may have compassion on us. And I think that's in essence what this first section in the psalm wants to try and tell us. What right do we have to come to God? We have none. We can bank on one thing and one thing only, that he may have mercy on us who are sinners. And that's kind of what David develops then as he moves on to the, to the second part of this psalm. He says essentially, with, the, with those verses, verses 3 to 6, this is what he says, God, I, I own my sin. I acknowledge this. I take responsibility for my sin. He says three things about his sin in these verses. The first is, I can't shake how bad my sin makes me feel. My sin is always before me. Now remember, remember the extent of his failure, right? Remember the things that he's done. Can you imagine his conscience as he sat knowing what he's done and it's not public, it's not known and it's unconfessed. Day and night, he says, my sin is always before me. In another psalm, he writes this Psalm 32, which probably reflects to this same situation in his life. He says these words, he says, My bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. My strength was sapped. Unconfessed sin does this. It drains us. It saps the life out of us. It makes us miserable. I don't know how you felt sometimes in church when, when, we, when we know something isn't right in our lives, whether it is, it is a once-off big thing or, or something that, for me, that I struggled with over a long time. It, it's hard to be in church. It's hard to sing of God's goodness and holiness and you know that there's this thing that's not right. It drains us, sucks the life out of us. And we can't shake it. This is what David says. I can't shake just how bad my sin makes me feel. The second thing he says is, I know that what I've done is sin. Against you, you only have I sinned. David says. His sin is only sin in the eyes of God. God tells us how we should live and if those things are breached or missed or transgressed, it's him that is offended. Against you only have I sinned. I know that it is sin, David says. Now, it may seem like a bit of an obvious point. Of course he knows that it's sin because this whole psalm is about confessing it. But I want to just lift out here that you know, most often the world 
and quite often the church does not see sin as sin. How often do we blame our problems, our conflicts on others, other things, other people, other situations? How often do we read or, or hear this kind of line in an email? <laughs> yeah, sure, I know I'm not perfect, but... <laughs> and then there's a long tirade of what's wrong with the other person or the other people or, or, or the other things in life that, that sort of we, we pin or we blame. Um, you know, our ill feelings or our, our situation on. And when David, what David shows in this psalm is that the reverse should be true. The tirade should usually be about ourselves, how we have failed, what we did not live up to, and a little line about the other person, the other factors in our situation. The log should be in my eye, according to Jesus, and the speck in the other. And according to an American psychologist, Carl Rogers, he says this brilliantly, he says, the only person who cannot be helped is that person who blames others. The only person who cannot be helped is that person who blames others. David's saying to us in this psalm, when he says, I own my sin, I don't deny it, I'm not pinning it on anything or anyone else, He's saying, I want to help myself. I want to be helped out of this miserable situation of my sin. So I'll own it. And then the third thing he says in these verses is, I confess that my sin is inherent. That's a big word. All it means is is that not only do I do sin, I, I am a sinner. Almost in our, in our modern language, we, we want to say that uh, sin is genetic. Uh, we, we're born with it. We, we cannot escape it. Surely I was sinful at birth, David says. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But this doesn't mean that we are always as bad as we possibly can be in every single situation, but it does mean that we cannot live up to the good that we should be, who we should be. We can't not do the things that we shouldn't do and we can't do the things that we should do to the full extent that God intends for us. I confess that my sin is inherent. I confess that my sin is sin. And, what was the other one? I can't shake how bad my sin makes me feel. That's what David says in the second part of the psalm. Now, I want to just pause for a little bit here and say, you might think to yourself, in particular if you're a new Christian or if you're not a Christian, even if you have been a Christian for a long time but you question even why you are a Christian, you might say to yourself that up to this point, this is why I hate church. Because church is always about telling you, they're always about, on about telling you how bad you are, how bad you should feel about yourself, how worthless you are. 
And you might say, well, I hate that. You would have heard that story many a time. I've heard it many a time. I hate church because they tell you how bad you are. Well, let me answer the question then, why do I actually spend so much time on this? Why do I bother hovering so much about sin and our own sinfulness today? Well, recently, on the news, you couldn't have escaped, and if I can just get that picture up, thanks, uh, this story, the Thai boys in that cave. Our world was gripped. We were riveted by what happened in this story, and I sort of wondered, probably like you did too, what was it that, that gripped us so much about this for most of the last month? And I have to think, I think one of the things why this was so intense for us is because of the incredible size of the rescue effort that people had to go through to get these boys out. I mean, the stats are just incredible. They're three kilometres into this cave from where they, from where they set up a base to start getting them. I think it's four kilometres from the where, place where the boys actually entered. You know, there's something like 800 metres down. It's something like an 11-hour round trip from where the divers started to where they needed to be and, and getting out. It's enormous, the effort that had to be gone through to, to get these boys. And we could not appreciate the size of this rescue effort unless we appreciated how utterly and incredibly lost they were. As a Christian, you can never appreciate how loving and compassionate and good God is unless we can appreciate how lost we are in our sin. David knows this. And I think that's why he spends so much time in this psalm labouring the point, just describing, just giving a picture of how utterly lost he was. And now, from here on, we see that the river bends. (laughs) Now the rescue effort begins and the tone changes. The psalm moves on. David said, have mercy on me. He said, I own my sin. And now at point three, he asks this. He says, God... Please, clean me up. Clean me up. He uses three words for for cleaning in in, in these verses. He says, cleanse me. Literally means purge me. If you want to be more literal, de-sin me. Unsin me. Then he says, wash me. And this has to do with some of the symbolic washings that, that were around in the Old Testament. For us today... Think of when you have a shower. Wash, clean me. Uh, Blot out my transgressions. It's really cool. Um, The blotting out that he had in mind is in the old days when they wrote um, manuscripts. There was a certain set of manuscripts that they called palimpsests. It's a real odd word. And they would write on these, these scrolls and manuscripts and if they didn't like what they wrote or they wanted to change what they wrote, what they'd do is they'd wipe it out, they'd turn it this way, and they'd write a new thing that way. And that's what David says. He says, you know what, my story at this point is really not good. I don't like what's written 
in the story of my life here. God, what I want you to do is I want you to wipe that out. I want you to turn it this way and write a new story. (laughs) Clean me. Blot out my transgression. De-sin me. He's asking. Now here is where the river gets quite deep. Because you see, this cleaning, this washing and blotting out comes at an enormous cost. The cost of this forgiveness of sin is, is hidden really well, but it's there in verse 7. David says, clean me with hyssop. Has anyone ever seen a hyssop plant or hyssop plant? It's a little bit like lavender. A lavender stalk or a few lavender stalks together. It's, uh, it's quite a flimsy sort of a plant. Um, and it used to grow just in cracks in temple walls and, and places like that. And it was often used as a small brush. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, I'll just take you through the history. You might recall some of this stuff. If you're not a Christian or you're, you're not really familiar with the Bible, just bear with me. I hope it makes sense. Perhaps the most significant time that hyssop was mentioned in the Bible was at an event called the Passover. Jewish people are slaves in Egypt and God says, I'm going to break you free, I'm going to make you my own and you're going to be a blessing to all peoples. I'm going to save the world through you. But as part of this exiting out of Egypt, we read this. One night, they had to take a bunch of hyssop. Can we just scroll to the next one? Thanks. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of your doorframe. You may recall the story when the angel of death passed over Egypt in God's judgment over Egypt. If there was blood on the doorframe, the oldest son in that household would not die. Every other oldest son in every household died. And then we read about this in the New Testament in Hebrews. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the Lord to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, bunches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people, the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Church, do you see what's so hugely significant about this? When David asked God to clean him with hyssop, he meant cleanse me by the blood of Forgive me. Regard me as clean. My sins blotted out on the basis of an innocent victim that has died. And you know, the guts of the Christian message is this. It's not that you have to be a good and clean person. No, no, it's that your sin can only be cleaned up by the blood of an innocent victim. 
Of course it's Jesus. Of course this is where David at such a pivotal moment looks forward in the Old Testament and he, he, he sees, he knows a day is coming when God is ultimately going to clean the sins of all by the blood of his son. Clean me with hyssop. If you want your sin to be cleaned up, washed away, blotted out, come to Jesus. Jesus is the sin cleaner. Ask him, Jesus, clean me up. I'm sick of living like this. Wash me. Clean me. Now, if you're here today and you've done this some time ago, it's true that you may still be struggling with your sin. You say, look, I've asked Jesus to clean me. In fact, I believe I am cleaned. And we know that even after Jesus has cleaned us, we don't stop sinning automatically. We wrestle with this. We can wrestle with it for a long time, for all of our life, really, in varying degrees. So, this is what you need to hear today. If you are a Christian, if Jesus has cleaned you up and you're still struggling with your sin, listen carefully to what David says next. Not only does he say, clean me up, Jesus, he asks this, Number four, please fix me up. Clean me up and then fix me up. Again, David asks God for three things in here. I'm going to paddle a little bit up this creek and then we're going to race past the last two, so you're doing well. Three things in here. First thing he says is, create in me a pure heart. The Hebrew word, for create used here is the word bara. Bara. Anyone want to take a guess where else in the Old Testament this word is used? Just shout it out to me. Genesis. Absolutely. In Genesis chapter 1, this is awesome, I, I've got to tell you, it's really awesome. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible gives us the account of how God created the world and it uses a number of Hebrew verbs to talk about how God has done this, but this one, bara, is unique. God is creating the world. Now remember, God is the only one who can create something out of nothing. We can create stuff, you and I, because in that sense we're a bit like God, but we can create something out of something. We take these somethings, we put them together and we go, here's new. Here's bricks, here's mortar, there's a wall. We created it. What God does when he baras, when he creates, is he makes something out of nothing. That's why God is God. That's what he can do. And in the creation account we read that uh, you know, he, he brings matter, soil and water out of nothing. He creates self-conscious life like animals. Uh, and then he creates God-conscious life, us, human beings. And, and on these three things in the creation account, this word bara is used. God creating life out of nothing. What's the word that David uses when he says, create in me a clean heart? Barah. <laughs> David says it's going to take nothing less. Fixing me up is going to take nothing less than God in the same power that created this world out of nothing working in me. <laughs> Fixing me up. <laughs> this is something that only 
God can do. And I need to talk to you today, if, if, if you're sitting in a religious life where, where you think that you can fix yourself up, stop. You cannot. You must not. If you want to end up in a miserable, miserable life, piled with guilt at failure again and again of breaking through your sin, then ignore this verse. But if you really want to be fixed up, understand that it's God's work. Stop trying to fix yourself and turn to Jesus who will have mercy on you and say, Jesus, you, you fix me up. Bara in me a new heart. Make something in me that was not there before, something out of nothing. Fix me up. This is... This is what David asks for and you know what? This is the the power and the potency of the gospel. This is what it can do. And this is what we need to ask for. Ezekiel 36. God talks to us about our times and he says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take away your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what David asks for. First thing in this section, create in me a pure heart. The next thing is this. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. There's a question that comes up here. Once a Christian has received the Holy Spirit, can they lose the Holy Spirit? Why does David ask, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Is it possible? Possible that you can come to faith and be filled with God's Spirit and because of your sin that you can lose him? Uh, That's the question that pops out in this verse and then lots of ink has been spilt over this. I'll save you the long answer and simply say, no, you can't. You can't lose God's Holy Spirit. You can't be born again and then be unborn. When a baby is born, the baby's born. If you're spiritually reborn and God has filled you with his Holy Spirit, you're reborn. It's the end of the story. David's not talking here about losing his salvation. He's not talking about losing Uh, God's Holy Spirit in him. Uh, Instead, I think what he's simply asking for is, and what he's simply saying is, he can't live a fixed up life unless God's Spirit is helping him. Unless God is the power and the source and the Holy Spirit is the source of what fixes him up, he has no hope. That's all he's saying. Which leads to the third and the last thing that we see in this section. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know what, church? The thing about sin is that it's, it really steals our joy. You can't enjoy God when we're caught in the clutches of unrepentant sin. I love the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith. You know, it says, what's the chief end of man? What's our primary purpose as people? Well, it's to glorify God and... Enjoy him. (laughs) 
Enjoy God. God is brilliant. He should be enjoyed. He should be relished. And of course, if there is sin that we do not intend to break out from, there's no way we can enjoy him. And it's the greatest casualty of our sin. And David simply asks this. He says, God, I'm missing you. I'm missing the joy of you. And I want it back. Bring it back. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Okay, so far we've said, just to recap, when we're stuck in sin, here's what we need to say, more or less. God, please have mercy on me. God, I own my sin. Please clean me up. Please fix me up. And now there's two more creeks that, you know, go off this river. But here's the good news. Um, we're now going to put an electric motor on and we're going to go real fast. <laughs> past these last two, because I recognise this is a very long message. So, here we go. Point number five. Thanks. David says this, I'll just read the first line, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. What he's saying here is that I want to share this with others. It's very easy to read this and say, David wants to tell other people to be as morally righteous and as good a person as he is. That's not what he's asking for. What he wants to be able to tell other people is, this is how God has cleaned me up and fixed me up. What I need you to know about me as a pastor is not that I'm well educated or that I know stuff, what you need to know is that I wrestled with a very serious addiction and God has cleaned me up and fixed me up and he's still busy doing so. What needs to be known about you to your children if you're a parent, what needs to be known to your community about you as a church is not how good you are, it's about how God has cleaned you up and fixed you up. That's what we share. That's the gospel. And David simply says in this piece, this is what I want to be known about me. (laughs) In fact, not even what I would want to be known about me, this is what I want to be known about God, that God is a cleaner upper and a fixer upper. He loves, he loves to change and transform and give joy and restore to himself. So God, fix me up, not that I can be good, that I can tell others of your goodness. And then lastly, David simply asks, God, please forgive, sorry, bless the victims of my sin. This is just the last point, point six. He sort of broadens his prayer. He says, I want to pray for Zion, which is, which is uh, God's people in the Old Testament, metaphorically, build up the walls of Jerusalem. And, and, and this just recognises, you know, when we sin, others are affected. Your sin never only affects yourself, it always affects horizontally other people. And when we failed, part of the prayer of restoration is, God, restore those who've been hurt, who've been cheated, and who are affected by my sin. Bless them. Let others be restored as much as I am. And let your mercy and your grace flow wider than just me. There you have it, church. We've 
paddled this whole river. We've reached the end and you have done exceptionally well. So thank you very much. To finish, what I want to do is simply say this prayer of David's now. And I want to invite you, if you're in a position of moral failure today, which you may well be, if you're sitting in the ashes, may I ask you to take whatever it is that you're wrestling with in your mind and I'm going to pray this prayer in the first person. Pray it with me today. If you have been cleaned by the blood of Jesus and you need to be fixed up more and want to be fixed up more, grab that thing that you want to be fixed up in more and pray this with me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, will you have mercy on me in your unfailing love and compassion? I confess and I own this sin. I don't deny it and I humbly take responsibility for it. My Lord, please clean me. Wash me and blot out my sin. Thank you that you've done so fully in Christ and that he is sufficient for it. As I go forward, please, O oh Lord, fix me up. Continue to fix me up more and more. Let the walls that you may have started building continue to be built. Lord, I want to be stronger, cleaner, enjoy you more. And Father, may I share of your great and wonderful work in me with others. Father, for those affected by my sin, I pray healing, restoration in Christ's mercy. Amen.